Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Today we are joined by Kevin Ehrman Solberg, who grew up in the Twin Cities of Minnesota and is currently working on his uh, GIS mapping degree, uh, graduate degree at the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Kevin, uh, in the most uh, recent issue of the journal Middle West Review, you have an article uh, entitled The Battle of the Bookstores and it's about Minneapolis. Can you tell us about that article and how it came to be and what it's about? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, the initial impetus for uh, this article came out of um, my undergraduate degree at Augsburg College. I double majored in English and History, and my honors thesis was concerned with uh, pornography theaters in the twin immediate Minneapolis area. And initially, I was curious, I should say, about the role that old single-screen movie theaters played in their communities and what happened to these theaters in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. I soon found out that the short answer was a man named Ferris Alexander bought all of them and turned them into pornography theaters. As I was doing more research, I started to stumble across these references to queer men who would appropriate the spaces in these theaters and these pornographic bookstores and use them as a site to facilitate sex with other men. The Minneapolis Police Department found out about this and between 1979 and 1985 they trapped and arrested over 5,000 men on indecent conduct charges. The general strategy was you would send a plainclothes officer into one of these spaces. This officer would pose as a gay man, would hit on various patrons. As soon as one of them responded with a sexual gesture or proposition, the undercover officer would then arrest them. My article is explicitly, or more specifically, I should say, examining the role that pornographic space played in Minneapolis in relation to the formation of queer identities and the historical context of the time. This is right when the uh, self-described radical feminist movement was at its strongest. Um, two women, Andrea DeWorkin and Catherine McKinnon, very you know, upper echelon figures in that movement, uh, pushed an anti-pornography ordinance through the Minneapolis City Council in the early 80s. So at the same time that these pornographic spaces were being targeted by feminist women who believed that there was a causal relationship between pornography and violence, one of them, Robin Morgan, uh, succinctly put it that pornography is the theory and rape is the practice. They're, believe that there was this causal link between pornography and then subsequent violence against women. So at the same time, these women are trying to force these stores out of business. There's this you know, other conflict that's happening more under the radar between local queer men and the Minneapolis Police Department. So these pornographic spaces functioned as this you know, almost liminal space where all these competing discourses, all these competing you know, beliefs around uh, spatial identity and sexual expression were uh, coming into direct conflict with each other. Why, why was Minneapolis such a hotbed for these attempts to shut down these uh, bookstores by Dworkin and McKinnon? Was it just the happenstance that uh, they both happened to be at University of Minnesota Law School, or, or was there some other reason for this? Well, McKinnon specifically was... Uh, uh, 
faculty at the University of Minnesota Law School. Dworkin was brought in for one semester, so she wasn't a permanent uh, permanent faculty member there. But the con <clears throat> the historic context in Minneapolis surrounding pornographic space it both pre and post dates the radical feminist movement in the early '80s, and in South Minneapolis especially, you see a profound. Um, surge in grassroots neighborhood activism throughout the 70s. These neighbors viewed pornographic space not as necessarily inherently problematic. They weren't making that same causal link between pornography and violence that you know McKinnon and Dworkin were. But they just didn't want it in their backyard. For them, this was an issue of neighborhood identity and neighborhood control. This is our space. We should be able to define what, uh, what happens here. So by the time McKinnon and Dworkin came to Minneapolis, there was already this you know, powerful political framework in place that had been advocating against pornography, against Ferris Alexander, and against these spaces for well over a decade. I think without that, you know, existing structural support, I don't think you would have seen the anti-pornography ordinance in Minneapolis. What was the relationship like between Dworkin and McKinnon on the one hand, the radical feminists, as you say, and the more... Uh, old line Puritan approach to wanting to shut down these bookstores. Did they cooperate? Did they work together? Or were they sort of at odds? Um, both happened. Initially, they were very cooperative. The uh, Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Task Force on Pornography, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> I, I, I didn't name the organization. They initially invited McKinnon and Dworkin in. McKinnon and Dworkin, and uh, McKinnon especially, drafted the legal framework for it. They made a new argument against pornography that wasn't rooted in obscenity. They were framing it as a civil rights issue. The neighborhood action uh, groups saw this as a new tool to combat Ferris Alexander and his entrenched pornographic businesses. It was a means to an end. The two cooperated and successfully passed this ordinance through the city council. They got it through twice. Both times it was uh, vetoed by Mayor Don Frazier. But within a year after the last veto, the um, Neighborhood Pornography Task Force had disowned the radical feminist theory, and then the parent organization, the Powderhorn Neighborhood Association, essentially disowned the anti-pornography task force. They believed that the feminist discourse against pornography wasn't paying close enough attention to what was happening at a local neighborhood level. For a lot of these neighborhood residents, the issue wasn't the pornography itself. The issue was the pornographic space. It's not that I have a problem with pornography in general, but my kid, you know, picks up uh, <laughs> the school bus picks him up right there, and across the street is a theater that has XXX right on the uh, right on the front. So why why did Ferris Alexander seem to have? quite a bit of power, and how was it that uh, he was able to convince the mayor, Mayor Frazier, to veto this uh, ordinance? Well, I don't think Ferris was directly responsible for the veto of the ordinance. The argument that Frazier used when he vetoed um, the, uh, the anti-pornography ordinance was that he didn't believe there was this causal link between violence against women and pornography. Now, Ferris Alexander was in many ways one of the most visible public enemies in Minneapolis at the time. And the city had been going after him for years. And he was very good at beating, uh, beating the raps. I mean, he was arrested 
dozens of times from 1960 through the early 1990s, and it took over 30 years for them to get a real federal condition on them. Uh, you mentioned these police crackdowns on these bookstores in Minneapolis, et cetera. Is there something unique about Minneapolis, or was this simply how this was treated in a lot of urban spaces around the country? Uh, I mean, I think we all have this general conventional wisdom that Minneapolis is a more tolerant urban space than many others. Um, was there something different here, or uh, was were the crackdowns less severe here, or how would you describe it? Sure. So there were, in Minneapolis, there were two distinct phases of these crackdowns. The first took place in the 60s and the 70s, and these relied on existing obscenity law. The general you know, methodology was you'd send a, you know, a team of police officers to a theater or a bookstore, and it would be a big bust. Everybody, all the um, ticket takers or clerks would be arrested, material would be confiscated, and obscenity... Um, obscenity charges would be levied against them. What was different um, in the fight between police officers and local queer men in the early 80s was that obscenity didn't have anything to do with it. They weren't going after the pornographers, they weren't going after the businesses, they were going after the men who were using these spaces and they were using leveraging indecent conduct charges. This sort of, uh, this pattern of vice squad entrapment was certainly not unique to Minneapolis. And in fact, the police chief who instituted this policy, Anthony Boza, started in New York City. And he was one of, um, he was in charge of the subway patrols where he helped develop this policy of undercover entrapment. He essentially brought that methodology to Minneapolis. What was unique about Minneapolis, however, is that the men who were arrested and the local, the emerging uh, political power of um, this burgeoning uh, gay li sexual liberation movement forced the administration to stop this policy in 1985. And um, you know, it kind of goes to the, in the world of queer studies, there's this critique of metronormativity that um, an undue amount of scholarly attention is paid to the formation of gay and queer identities on the coastal cities, you know, San Francisco, New York, Washington, D.C. And in this paradigm, the interior of the country is the thing to be reacted against. What was interesting about Minneapolis at this time is we had a more openly gay and lesbian members on the Minneapolis City Council in the 1980s than San Francisco did. Hmm. There was a surprisingly strong, at least for that period, and at least compared to the rest of the country, a very strong queer political movement in Minneapolis. When uh, Brian Coyle was elected as city council member in the early 80s, this in many ways signaled a profound shift in the DFL party in Minneapolis, and these concerns of you know gay and lesbian and queer people in the city for the first time, they had political power backing them. I mean, before, in the 70s, if a vice squad officer trapped and arrested a gay man, nobody would say anything. You didn't have anybody to go to bat for you, so to speak. Once you have Brian Coyle on the city council, you have Alan Spear in the um, state legislature, you have Karen Clark, another uh, the first uh, openly lesbian woman elected to political office in the state of Minnesota. Now you have some leverage. <clears throat> and in uh, 1985, uh, Several things happened. Uh, Ferris Alexander, the uh, pornographer I mentioned earlier, filed a class action lawsuit against the city um, with uh, several other men who had been arrested for these indecent uh, conduct charges. 
Brian Coyle, Alan Spear, and Karen Clark got together and sat down with Mayor Frazier and Tony Boza and said, this needs to stop. We need to change this policy. And this is a policy of selective enforcement. And in many ways, this was the first you know, explicit victory for queer sexual expression in the state. This wasn't the first time there were gay politicians or the first time there was a gay or a queer political victory, but this was the first time they really went to bat to specifically protect queer sexual expression. You mentioned Alan Spear. Uh, I'm familiar with this uh, wonderful book about the great migration to Chicago and uh, the history of African Americans in Chicago and it's written by Alan Spear who I think was a sociologist at the University of Minnesota is this the same person I believe so yeah I think it might be he's he might be a very interesting topic for uh, for an article or some sort of project too but you mentioned 1985 as being this key date for Minneapolis um, in which, you know, the LGBT community had more political power and could sure. shut down these raids and stuff. Is this true in other cities? Was Minneapolis ahead of the game vis-a-vis uh, -vis other cities in the Midwest and around the country? Or can you give us some context? Yes, yes. Um, in some ways... I would agree with that. I would be a little leery of using specifically the uh, GLBT terminology. That, the idea of this kind of unified movement really doesn't begin to coalesce until towards the end of the AIDS crisis. At the time in the early 80s, and this was one of the reasons there was so much conflict over pornographic space, you, you had separate movements. You had an emerging uh, lesbian movement. You had a gay sexual liberation movement, but they weren't unified and they often came into direct conflict with each other. There was, um, Minneapolis is one of the longest running uh, pride celebrations in the country, and in the early 80s, it actually split into a separate gay and a separate lesbian pride. Um, and uh, her last name was omitted in the, um, the materials that I have. Uh, she was one of the organizers of kind of this lesbian, this separate lesbian pride festival, and she gave an interview to uh, Equal Time, which was a local uh, queer publication. And they asked her about the reason for the split, and she was very, she used some very charged language, and she said that an emerging lesbian consciousness needs to be recognized. We are sick of <coughs> defending child molesters, pornographers, and faggots. So, this is why I'm hesitant to use terms like GLBT movement. Yeah. <laughs> Understood. So tell us a little bit about where, about the um, origin of uh, a lot of the gay men in Minneapolis. Here's my very off-the-cuff impression that there is maybe a five or six state area around the Twin Cities, including the Dakotas and Iowa uh, and uh, maybe Nebraska, and where there are a lot of, uh, back in that era, discriminated against young uh, gay and lesbian uh, people who would want to leave a small town or the farm or whatever and move to Minneapolis. Is this, is this uh, impression I have accurate, do you think? Yes and no. Um, there is an interesting, uh, kind of, it was almost a manifesto of Carl Whitman who moved to San Francisco. He spoke specifically to that topic. And the language that he used was that we came to San Francisco not because it's so good here, but because it was so bad there. So there was certainly this image, anyway, that 
you know, the hinterland, the rural areas were repressive. Recent scholarship, and especially recent scholarship in queer studies, um, uh, the Unnatural State by Brock Thompson would be, or Colin Johnson's piece, Just Queer Folk, would be good, um, good examples, has been interrogating the existence of queer identity formations in rural areas. Mm -hmm. And again, this ties to that, to circle back to that metronormativity critique, that there has been this traditional belief that mm, authentic gay identities are visible gay identities, that in order to be authentically gay or authentically queer, you need to have a gay bar district and all these, you know, these visible structural structural things. But what's surprising, or maybe it shouldn't be surprising, is that even in the more rural sections of the country, there were identity formations around same sexual expression. They just look different. And they tend to center around uh, like the appropriation of public space, uh, public parks, restrooms. They had their own systems of, of cruising, their own coded languages, their own you know, uh, communicative networks. So just because it didn't have a billboard doesn't mean that it didn't necessarily exist. It was just different. I think I've heard Colin Johnson talk about this uh, at, at a conference in uh, Portland in the last couple of years. And one of the points he made, and he was talking about small towns in the Midwest, one of the points he made was that in contrast to big urban spaces, which can be... Um, you know, intimidating and alienating, and uh, you can be quite lonely in a big urban space. He made the point that we need to understand the factor of community in small towns and the fact that there may have been gays and lesbians in these little towns, but they knew everybody and they were friends with everybody and people kind of watched out for them. And so the model is kind of flipped where it's not as repressive, but they're just seen as part of the woodwork of the community. Mm -hmm. And I would agree to that. And that speaks too to um, you know, earlier arguments that were made, uh, you know, Foucault would be a good example, or even going back further, Kinsey, who viewed uh, what was the quote? That there are no, there are only homosexual acts. There are not homosexual persons. And it's not. Uh, Margot Kennedy just uh, wrote a brilliant book in the last few years, um, The Straight State, which interrogates the formation of these sexual categories of gay and lesbian and transgender, bisexual, straight. If you go back to the 19th century, that doesn't really exist. You, you know, there's kind of this broader umbrella term of, of perverts, but you wouldn't necessarily make a qualitative distinction between a transvestite or someone who's into cross-dressing, uh, you know, what, what you would call a lesbian woman today, and what you would, uh, I don't know, a prostitute. I mean, these were all just the bad sex things that you shouldn't do. But the idea that there were gay people I mean, that's an identity construct and a socially constructed one. Uh, Kennedy argues quite persuasively that it was an explicitly politically constructed category, that as the federal government expanded, especially in terms of uh, immigration, the GI Bill, uh, uh, the New Deal programs, it became increasingly important for the government to decide who gets money. In order to do that, you have to start categorizing people. <clears throat> so there was a very political element to the construction of these identities. So speaking to you know these... Um, you know, queer communities or queer folks in smaller rural areas, I think it comes back to this, the politics of identity formation, right? That if you live in a small town, I don't even think of this person necessarily as gay, I just think of him as my neighbor, and I 
fine with my neighbor and what he does in his own time is what he does in his, in his own time. Mm -hmm. Uh, refresh my memory. I I seem to recall in recent years after um, the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage that there was a long article in the New York Times about a semi-famous couple in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, who were married. I think by the mayor forty years ago or something. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was a uh, Jack Baker and. Um University of uh, University of Minnesota, and he did, and he married his partner. And I'm trying to remember the specific. He kind of got the marriage license through a legal loophole where no one had ever tried that before. So he tried it. He got the certificate. The state responded, or the city responded, or I mean, maybe it could have been at the county level, was saying that like, no, marriage has to be between a man or a woman. But he was able to successfully argue that this is an ex post facto ruling that you know we we got in we got the certificate before he made this law so he actually had a legally honored marriage certificate a gay marriage certificate that dates back to the to the 1970s <laughs> yeah that was a very very interesting story mm -hmm. uh, we're talking today with kevin ehrman solberg about his research on urban minneapolis uh, you are listening to Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Kevin, you recently reviewed um, a book for the Middle West Review, for which I am the book review editor, about Skid Row, Minneapolis, um, this sort of old part of Minneapolis prior to urban development, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm wondering, was there any or is or was there any overlap between the Skid Row area of Minneapolis and this this space populated by these bookstores and stuff that you are uh, studying. Yeah, certainly. And the fear when the gateway was redeveloped, oh, that was the, the local name for, for Skid Row. Was Skid Row, pardon me. It and why did they call it the gateway? It was the gateway to the city. It was the oh. oldest, it was the historic heart of Minneapolis. It's right along Washington Avenue, right um, just a few blocks up from, uh, from the Mississippi River. When the Gateway was redeveloped in the late 50s and the early 60s, the big civic fear was that, okay, if we destroy this district, where are all these people going to go? Is another Skid Row going to pop up somewhere else in the city? And if you read the planning documents at the time, I mean, all of this effort and concern was, well, what's going to happen to these, you know, these transients? What's going to happen to the quote-unquote bums who were uh, residing? And what's going to happen to, you know, the seedy institutions that had taken a hold of, um, of Skid Row. And it never rematerialized intact in any one part of the city, but you did get a diffusion. And a lot of the cultural legacy of Skid Row is now along Hennepin Avenue, which incidentally was one of the two largest pornography districts in the city of Minneapolis. And uh, Hennepin actually uh, intersects with Washington Avenue, so it was a pretty easy... Uh, Pretty easy um, migration, I suppose. Um, in, in the book, Schiffer talks about, too, that the Gateway was known for being uniquely tolerant of same sexual activity, especially in the 1950s. And I think a lot of that legacy 
that legacy of tolerance, it hasn't moved too far. It's not on Washington Avenue, but now it's on Hennepin Avenue. But some of the largest and oldest um, you know, gay institutions in the city, uh, the Saloon Bar, for example, or the Gay 90s, originally it was the happy hour, the bar above the Gay 90s was originally the gay bar. And then as that expanded, it kind of took over the entire uh, entire premises. And, you know, with a name like the Gay 90s, how could it? <laughs> right. How could it not? It was inevitable. Yeah. Uh, you are also uh, engaged in a new project about housing segregation in yes. Minneapolis or the Twin Cities. Can you outline that project for us? Yeah, so specifically we are looking at Minneapolis, and that's not to uh, suggest that these practices weren't operant in St. Paul or anywhere else in the Twin Cities. It's more a reflection on how challenging this work is. Essentially what we're doing is we're looking at what what were known as uh, racial deed restrictions. This was a clause that you could put in the warranty deed of your property that would prevent future sale of that property to anyone who wasn't white. Um, a common covenant that was used by the Seven Oaks real estate firm said that this property shall not be leased or granted to anyone who is Mongolian, Chinese, Japanese, Moorish, Negro, or of African blood or descent. So yeah, the eugenics-inspired language of these covenants was, uh, was very, very explicit. They also tracked with the land. So what that means is that you're really enforcing intergenerational segregation. If I have a property that's been racially covenanted and I sell it to you, and you in turn sell that property to you know, any of those categories that I mentioned earlier, you have violated the terms of the property deed. You would lose the house, any equity you have tied up into it, and it would revert back to me, the original owner. Now, as historians, we've known that these deed restrictions have existed. The problem is we don't really know much about how comprehensive they were, why they appear in some cities and not others, why they appear in certain parts of some cities and not others, uh, you know, what period they're most common, what language was used. And the reason for that is that they're stored in the actual property records. And to put this in perspective, Hennepin County, where Minneapolis is located, has 1.7 million warranty deeds. So the traditional methodologies of the historian, you know, manually going to the archive and scanning through these things, it's just, it's, it's not possible. And as such, no one's ever tried to really comprehensively tackle with these, um, tackle these, uh, and these deed restrictions. What we're doing at uh, Historiapolis with the Mapping Prejudice Project is we're leveraging GIS technology and OCR technology, optical character recognition, to extract these deeds, these digitized deeds, and extract the deeds that have racial language. From that, we're going to, we're in the process, I should say, of building the first comprehensive map of these racial restrictions for an American city. Nobody has ever tried to do this on this scale before, and we're at We've currently mapped about 17,000 properties, 5,000 of which have come back as, um, uh, 5,000 of which have these racial restrictions embedded in the property record. And that still only accounts for about 20% of the total properties in the city. So this is indeed a ongoing and long-term project. Are you familiar with uh, Colin Gordon's book on St. Louis? Yes. Can you tell us about that and how it may relate to Minneapolis and if you're going to do some kind of comparative work, which I think would be very interesting. Sure. So, and, and not just for that book, but kind of the scholarship on this topic in general has traditionally focused on racial covenants 
which were kind of neighborhood level restrictions and most of the scholarship, I would say, has looked specifically at the FHA and redlining. And these mechanisms, they all came out of similar racist discourses on you know, the relationship between neighborhood stability and racial demographics. I mean, that's really kind of developing in the early 20th century, the idea that white neighborhoods are intrinsically more stable and better than neighborhoods with uh, people of color. The redlining specifically, and what we're looking at, these racial deed restrictions, they're complementary in enforcing this racially homogenous identity of urban, of urban space. And you, the pattern that you get is the racial deed restrictions, this closes off large swaths of the city to settlement of people of color. If you're black, you just can't buy one of these lots. So you're forced to look at property in the other sections of the city. These sections, in turn, were redlined by the Federal Housing Association, which means that if you're trying to purchase property there, you cannot get a federally backed mortgage. So you wind up with this, it just becomes very, very, very difficult to purchase property if you aren't white during this period. And keep in mind, this is this period of American history, you know, early to mid 20th century, this is one of the biggest housing booms we've ever had as a country. You're witnessing a huge expansion of the middle class. That expansion is predicated on the ability to purchase houses, relatively cheap houses in uh, you know, suburban areas and around the margins of cities. And people of color were simply denied the ability to, uh, to make those purchases. Can you give us some sense of what neighborhoods in Minneapolis were segregated and which ones were mixed, or I don't know what the right sure. term is. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I need to be a little leery of talking in broad patterns. We've only looked at 20% of the properties in the city, so it's not necessarily, as it stands right now, it's not a statistically representative data set. However, we have comprehensively looked at isolated segments and isolated neighborhoods, and our preliminary findings are that the areas of the city that are on the margins, the areas of the city that are worth significant amounts of money today, the more, you know, the, the quote-unquote good neighborhoods of Minneapolis in 2016 were the ones that had the highest density of racial covenants. So along Minnehaha Creek in South Minneapolis, uh, West River Parkway along the Mississippi River, along Shingle Creek on the border of North Minneapolis and uh, Brooklyn Park, and then parts of Northeast Minneapolis. Kevin, you're a Minneapolis native. Yes. Uh, what uh, area of the city did you grow up in? Uh, I was born in the city. I grew up in St. Louis Park and some of the western suburbs, and then I moved back into Minneapolis about uh, seven years ago. We've been talking with Kevin Ehrman Solberg, who is uh, completing some research about racial segregation in Minneapolis. His most recent publication is an article in the fall 2016 issue of Middle West Review entitled The Battle of the Bookstores. I'm John Lauk, your host of Heartland History. Thanks for joining us today. Our uh, podcast today is produced by Dana Brown. Thank you for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, 
calls for papers and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.